good reputation is more valuable than costly perfume, and the day you die is better than the day you were born. Better to spend your time at funerals than at parties. After all, everyone dies, so the living should take this to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for sadness has a refining influence on us. A wise person thinks a lot about death, while a fool thinks only about having a good time. Better to be criticized by a wise person than to be praised by a fool. A fool's laughter is quickly gone, like thorns crackling in a fire. This also is meaningless. Enjoy prosperity while you can, but when hard times strike, realize that both come from God. Remember that nothing is certain in this life. Three things we'll talk about as we talk about surviving sadness. Um, First, positivity is overrated. Second, sadness is survivable. Third, because God is for us. Let's pray. Father, it's one thing to, uh, like if this was a poem that some poet wrote or some person of antiquity and we were like breaking it down and saying, what does it mean? It's different coming from you. It's different coming from you, Jesus. This is your word and you are the, you are the one who has died and has been raised up. You are the one who had friends die. You are the one who had a dad die. You're the one who shouldered that dark burden all the days of your life here. And you defeated it. So the fact that you are the one saying to this changes how we hear it. And also, uh, I need you and we need you to um, make this get through to us in whatever way each individual in the room needs it. And so that's our request to you in uh, humility and in expectation as we turn our attention to your voice. We pray this in your name. Amen. Well. I mean, I've already staked my claim. I think uh, positivity is overrated. I don't know if that's a hot take or not. Like, you might want to argue with me. Um, But it's at least in high demand. Still really in huge demand. And positivity, positive thinking, kind of avoiding negative circumstances or negative people or negative thoughts. And the way that I know it's in high demand is uh, I'm a human being in 2022, just like you, and I have eyes and can see. But... Also, um, I don't remember what book I came across this. It might have been the David Zoll book, but he was referencing um, this situation that happened at Yale back in 2018. A psych professor had been toying around with the idea of doing this fun little elective class that she was interested in. She finally got around to developing the curriculum, titling it and posting it on the kind of the, the course registration system. It was Psych 157, Psychology and the Good Life. So she puts it up there and students are kind of registering for the next semester and something amazing happens. Within two days, 300 students have signed up for this diddly little psych elective that she thought, brand new class, gonna take years for word to get out about this. Couple days after that, that number doubled. Three days after that, that number doubled. So by the time it's the first day of class and they hold this class. 1,200 students, undergrad students at Yale were enrolled in this class. If you didn't know, Yale's not that big of a college. Uh, it was a quarter, 25% of the undergraduate student body was in that class that semester. One out of every four students signed up for psychology and the good life. Now the New York Times did an article on it. It's called Yale's most popular class ever. And they interviewed uh, this freshman and this freshman said this. She was trying to share an insight of like, 
why the demand for this class out of nowhere? She said, in reality, a lot of us are anxious, stressed, unhappy, numb, said Alana Minez, age 19, a freshman taking the course. The fact that a class like this has such a large interest speaks to how tired students are of numbing their emotions so we can focus on our work, the next step, the next accomplishment. Reminds me a couple of weeks ago when we were talking about pen face, remember? <laughs> I think what she's getting at is the reality of our lives today, the way that we're living our lives, a lot of us, requires this repetitive refueling on positivity to, to help us keep up the breakneck speed, to kind of remind us, I really can do this, I just gotta put a little bit more effort into it, I really am up for it. it requires this repetitive refueling on positivity, and what I mean by that, again, to, to define it a little bit more, this positive thinking, it's not like I'm opposed to good things, I like good things, don't you? But it's this like stubborn mentality of don't do anything to kill the party, don't mess up the good vibes, don't, don't raise negative thoughts, negative ideas, and in fact, negative thoughts are hurting my mental health, so I'm gonna avoid them, and if you're a negative person in my life, I'm gonna cut you out. Don't mess up my happiness. That's what I'm talking about with positivity. Um, but I think that it's becoming an open secret that that's overrated. I think, that's why I don't think it's a hot take. I think a lot of you think it's overrated. I know culturally it's becoming more acceptable to say, hey, I think this is overrated. There's this lady, um, she's kind of like, if you're into the Malcolm Gladwell kind of books, he's I guess like a pop sociologist, like a really good author, see a few fans out there. Um, this lady's name is Barbara Ehrenreich and she's, um, she also writes a lot of books like that. She wrote Nickel and Dime, she wrote a book called Bright Sided. Here's the subtitle in a blurb from the back. This is a book that just came out recently. How the Relentless Promotion of Positive Thinking Has Undermined America. Here's a blurb on the back, just a few sentences. In this utterly original take on the American frame of mind, the author traces the strange career of our sunny outlook from its origin to its enshrinement as a dominant, almost mandatory cultural attitude. But America's penchant for positive thinking has brought us an era of irrational optimism resulting in disaster. A fun little personal aside. Have any of you ever done a study abroad in Asia or in Europe or in Russia? Maybe other, countries, maybe other regions of the world too, but in, particularly in those places, they make fun of Americans for this stuff, you know? You Americans. Glass is always not just half full, it's overflowing. Everything's always great. You're so optimistic, and we make fun of the Europeans. You're so pessimistic and cynical. But the world knows us to be people who are irrationally optimistic, OD'd on positivity, that they don't think fits reality. And maybe it's because our teacher here at Ecclesiastes is from an Eastern culture and not captive to Western culture blind spots. But I really think he's saying the same thing. And we need, to, we need to see our Americanness to be able to feel the impact of what he's saying. Otherwise, we'll just be, we'll just, our temptation uniquely in the world is to be like, man, what a mood killer. He's warning us that this irrational optimism, always sunny positivity, is dangerous because it 
unlinks you from reality. And it leaves you unwilling, or worse, unable to face reality. Which means when reality hits in smaller big ways, your knees buckle and we just fall to the ground melt. We, we don't know how to launch a defense to real life, simple, real, ordinary life happening. So this is what the teacher means uh, when he says in verse 4, a wise person thinks a lot about death, while a fool only thinks about having a good time. Or I'm going to be dancing back between New Living Translation, which is on your page, and NIV. Kind of two different angles or, or, uh, or, or phrases of, of these. The NIV puts it this way. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning. M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G. But the heart of fools is in the house of pleasure. He's saying a fool can't face reality. A fool is incapable and unwilling of thinking about real things because to think about real things, to face reality, to talk about death, to talk about tragedy, to think about loss, would be to expose the whole illusion of a fool's life, which is, I'm going to live forever, I'm fine, I'm impenetrable, I'm invulnerable. So they laugh, the teacher says in verse 6. They look carefree. A fool's laughter is quickly gone, like thorns, like little kindling or twigs under a fire. You know, if you've ever started a fire, that you start with the tiny little twigs or the, the thorns, and they're gone first, five minutes later. Can't even see them. He's saying the fool's laughter is there, and then it's gone. And he's saying it's foolishness because, to state the obvious, but the inconvenient. Dying's not optional. It's not a fluke that affects the unlucky few who are the victims of tragedy. There's a Time Magazine article I was reading today, and it said it best. It said, dying is not a technical glitch of the human operating system. It's a feature. So fools deny this. Fools are offended that death had the audacity to come and mess up their plans. Do you feel foolishness in your heart? I feel it in mine. I feel that way. I feel like, you know, death comes to the victims of, of terrible tragedies as if it wasn't ordinary and going to happen to everybody. As if it was a, a, an anomaly instead of a 100% certainty. But the person who is learning wisdom, the person who is learning wisdom, God says, is learning to look at sobering realities like loss and death and the sadness that results from it. This is what he means. New Living Version says, better to spend your time at funerals and at parties and the living should take this to heart. In other words, those of us here should pay attention to that comment of where it's better to be. NIV puts it this way, it's better to go to a house of mourning or a house of sadness than a house of feasting. The living should take this to heart. These are foreign thoughts. I get it. To me, to you. We don't think this way. So it's one thing to start turning our eyes to even consider the things that 
he's talking about in this chapter. It's a whole nother thing to go into that house. So it's one thing to see a haunted house and to be like, ooh, there's a haunted house. It's a whole nother thing to walk up on its front porch and open the door and go inside. Our father is saying the wise person is in the house of mourning. So why would we go in? Why in the world would we go inside? Why would we spend time in places like this that really disrupt the narrative of everything is happy all the time as it ever should be? At least because God says it's worthwhile. Crazily, he says it's worth your while. And he says sadness is survivable. And he says sadness is formative. Verse 3, sadness has a refining influence on us. Have you ever had a friend who rubbed off on you in a really good way and you're different because of them or a mentor? You're like them now? They influenced you? Sadness is a good influence. It rubs off on you and knocks rough edges off in a way that changes you for the better. NIV says, a sad face is good for your heart. Now, to catch ourselves, God is not saying, hey, take two pills of sadness and problem solved. You'll be deeply depressed and we're all good to go now, right? He's not recommending sadness. He's acknowledging that sadness already lives in your house. And again, for some of us, it is a painful, potent, hourly reality. A dream died, a person died. Or you think about your own death, or you feel like you're the fluke because your 22-year-old body feels like a 70-year-old body. Some of y'all feels that way because of pain or injury. God's not recommending sadness for us. He's saying pay attention to the sadness that's already living in your house. And don't, it's not your enemy. You don't have to run from it. You don't have to expunge it because it could help you, much less than just harm you. Okay, if we're going to do that, if we're going to look at it and pay attention to it, um, I think it's going to take grace just to do that, especially for us Westerners who still don't like what we're hearing so far. Um, I came across this uh, picture uh, two years ago now, I guess. Um, Jalandahar, India. This popped up on uh, Twitter, and I don't know if this is the actual tweet I saw. This is the one I found today. But I I read this article about a town in India that um, a few days after the COVID shutdown happened two marches ago, and all the factories shut down, and there's no cars on the road, for the very first time ever, and I don't know if y'all can see it, but you see the little snow-capped mountains? Those are the Himalayas. And they're like, I mean, a mile above the horizon in this town. First time in 30 years that anybody in Jalandahar, India has seen the Himalayas in that city because of the pollution. The environmental pollution was blocking them from seeing what was always there And it took life and factories and cars and people grinding to a halt for that environmental pollution to blow away. And lo and behold, like if you grew up in Jalandahar, India, 
At your age, you never would have seen the mountains before. You'd be like, what? We live in a mountain town. Never knew it. And the teacher is saying, when we slow down and pay attention, and we actually consider at a heart level the things that your father is saying to you, it helps the environmental pollution of all this false positivity and naivete and sentimentality. It helps it blow away so that you can see things that are in fact right before your eyes, but we're incapable of seeing right now because we're blinded to it. Particularly, what would we be able to see? What are the mountains from the metaphor and what I'm talking about? Um, I put it this way, that if positivity is overrated and harmful, sadness is underrated and healing. That's one of the mountains that's right in front of us, but maybe only a few of us have had the opportunity to stumble into that lesson or that insight or that joy. What is a mountain? What, are, what particularly can we see when the pollution and the dust that's all stirred up in the air of, the, of just the, 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 the waters we swim in, the air we breathe? That sadness in God's careful hands has blessing in it. That loss, though deeply disorienting, can bring gain. This is what the teacher means in verse 1, which sounds mean. Not the first part of verse 1, but the second, the second line of verse 1. It just sounds mean. He says, the day that you die is better than the day you're born. You're like, whoa, put the gun away. What? Thanks for the happy birthday. <laughs> so what does he mean there? What he is saying, in a sense, the, the day of death is more profitable than the day of birth, or this. You considering and thinking about your exit from this world, the brevity of your life, the fragility of your body, the limitations that you have as a creature, the lack of control that you have as a creature, you thinking about that is more formative, more humbling, more illuminating than considering your birth. I got my whole life ahead of me. The world is my oyster. Let's go get it. Let's attack the day and make it happen. He's saying, considering your exit from this life is more profitable to you than considering your entrance into this life and how much opportunity is in front of you. We'll talk about how in just a second. But that's what he means when he says that. Don't get it backwards, he's saying. A lot of us think about it the reverse way, right? I mean, we're college students. You're particularly in an environment now that's just talking about future opportunity. What are you about to go do when your life begins? And the teacher is saying, how would you thinking about how your life ends change what you're doing now? So he says, slow down. Let's clear out the, po the, the polluted positivity. Let's start paying attention to things that we ordinarily rather wouldn't think about. Again, why though? Let's just list a few things. Maybe that would be helpful. Just a quick, brief bullet points. Because grieving the loss of precious things, whether it's a thing, like an internship that you felt like you needed to progress, or a dream, a relationship you had, a friendship you had, or whether it's your body, or it's your mom who got a really daunting diagnosis, 
Grieving the loss of precious things teaches us something you can't learn anywhere else, any other way. That's why if we ignore it, you miss something you will not find any other place. There will be a permanent deficit there. One of those things is this, the giftedness of life. And this is um, something that was also news to me because um, I don't know what your prior thoughts about Ecclesiastes were before this series, but if you asked me, I would have said, oh, it's a cynical old man who's like smoking a cigarette the whole time being like, it's all meaningless, it's all pointless. Just go have fun because everyone's gonna die and it doesn't mean anything. But have you been picking up how there has not been a week, there, there's not been a single chapter that we've read so far when he has not pulled the carve and said, hey, y'all, I hope, did you savor your dinner tonight? Did you see the moon on your drive over here? Did you, did you stop and take it in? Um, did you soak up the laughter of your roommate or the personality of your best friend and how it just brings you to life? He's saying life is a gift and all the little stuff in it is a gift from a God who decided to give it because he loves you, because he's generous, because he's kind, because he's stubborn. And even though the world is broken and heavily and under the sun, he insists that light still gets through the cracks. The giftedness of life is a, is a lesson. It's a, understanding that at a true depth only comes by grieving the loss of things that we have lost. Here's why. That sounds really uh, counterintuitive. Here's why. Grief forcefully demands that you pay attention to how much you loved something that you no longer have, right? It could be as little as a car. Like last week, my car wouldn't start the night that it got really cold. And I'm looking at Grace. Her car's been in the shop for like a month now. I bet you appreciate the gift of your car now in ways you never did before. The loss of something finally introduces you to the value of something that was always there but flying under the radar. Kara Tippetts is someone that um, uh, Anna particularly knew out in Colorado when she lived out there. Um, Kara was the wife of one of the pastors out there, and you might have heard her name. She kind of became famous from her blog. Um, I think she was around 40 or young 40s when she died of cancer, but had a long multi-year struggle with cancer. She has a lot of little kids who were very young when she passed away. One of the things that she said in her blog as she was processing her own drawn-out um, death was that affliction is a bruising of blessing. Affliction is the bruising of a blessing. Which means there was a blessing there. As she began to have to let go of her life here and her little kids here and their laughter and her husband and the Colorado mountains and the cool air in the morning, it, it pushed it right up into her face how brilliant this world is and how much God had given her. Grief actually connects you to a truer and deeper gratitude than you've ever been capable of knowing. Some of y'all know this, you've learned it. It wasn't until you lost something that you ever saw it or knew it or valued it. Sadness isn't just kind of replaced by joy one day when you get over it. Most people who've experienced deep sadness know that you never get over it. It becomes part of you. 
but it prepares you for joy. It plows the soil of your heart that the seed of joy can finally grow. So in other words, you could say that joy is a 2,000 level class and sadness is the prereq. You cannot get in joy without going through sadness first. There's no other way in the class. There's a guy named Gerald Sitzer, and I don't know much of his story, uh, but he's an author, and this is one of those quotes I filed away a while ago. He said, uh, he was talking about the death of a loved one in his life. He said, I didn't go through pain and come out the other side. Instead, I lived in it. And I found within that pain the grace to survive and eventually grow. I didn't get over the loss of my loved ones. Instead, I absorbed the loss into my life like soil receiving decaying matter until it became a part of who I am. Sorrow took up permanent residence in my soul and enlarged it. I'll be brief here. I don't know about you, but we've all suffered loss of various magnitudes. But when I think about my own life, when I have been in seasons of loss or just dark valleys of sadness, and I just feel like I've got nothing but God left. Um, have you experienced what I experienced in those times? The world felt more high definition and in color. I was more alert to it and more awake to it. The walks that I took in that season of life, I felt the breeze. I heard every bird. I appreciated every color, every meal, every friend, every text, every hug. Sadness is a preparation for joy. And you can't get into the class of joy without going through the class of sadness. Another thing that you learn in sadness that you can't really learn anywhere else, sadness or even facing big deal things like death helps you reverse engineer your life. It puts you in a time capsule and it fast forwards you to the end, which could be next month, could be in 40 years. And it, and it says to you, consider the end so that you know how to live in the middle. Watch the end of the movie, watch the last scene so that you know how to get there well. This is Psalm 90, the psalmist says, Lord, teach me to number my days so that I might gain a heart of wisdom. That's the secret to a heart of wisdom. Teach me to count, to number. We number scarce things that are finite. He's saying my life is finite. It's got an expiration date. Teach me to pay attention to that. Help me to not be scared of that, but to handle that in your presence. One thing I want to make clear is that I'm not just saying, and I don't think the Bible is just saying, sadness is survivable, so cheer up. That could, that could make you really angry if you're in a place of sadness or you have lost something really, really precious because you'd be like, what are you talking about? Sadness is survivable? You feel like it is an anchor pulling you into the, to just the ocean, the depths, the waves of grief or pain or darkness. But I didn't say that and the teacher didn't say sadness is survivable, period. Sadness is survivable because God is for you and he is with you. And that's the last point. The teacher says that the wise person is in the house of mourning, that the wise go to the house of mourning, that the wise think about death often, that the fool is the one with his or her head securely buried in the sand. 
And it's as if he says that sadness will hurt you. But for the Christian, it will not harm you. And those are two different things. Hurt talks about pain. Harm talks about destruction. Harm takes something from you that it never gives back, and you're less. Hurt transforms you, and hurt forms you. When we go to the end of the story in the Bible, which, is, which helps us correctly interpret Ecclesiastes, because like I said, this is one book of 66. It's not the, Ecclesiastes isn't the Bible. It has a place in the Bible, in the story of redemption. You go to the end of the story, Revelation chapter 21, and the Apostle John, uh, Jesus, let him peek in on the end, which is really the beginning of a whole new world. Jesus let him see the end of the story so that John and the rest of us would know how to live in the middle. And this is what John saw the day that Jesus pulled back the curtain just enough for John to peek through and report back to us what he saw. He said in that, you know, behold, I saw Jesus sitting on a throne, and he said, behold, I am making all things new. And then in verse 4, he says this, and this is the point of why I'm bringing it up. Jesus will wipe away every tear from our eyes, and death shall be no more, and neither shall there be any more mourning or crying or pain anymore, for these things have passed away. They've died. The reason I bring this passage up in this chapter of Ecclesiastes is for two things. One, you and I will arrive in heaven with tears on our cheeks, crying. When you first see Jesus, your cheeks will be wet. Why? Because you just finished living life under the sun. And it is hard. And it really hurts. And it's really confusing. And it's really burdensome. And you've experienced pain and death and all these things that John said will go away. That also means this second thing. That Jesus' thumb is the first thing you'll feel in heaven. As he puts it on your cheek and as he looks at you in the eyes... And he wipes it away with a smile and he says, the former things that caused these tears have passed away. Guess who's not passing away? You. So think about this, friends. If you are in Christ or if you're not in Christ, consider what he freely offers you. He doesn't play hard to get. It's right there for the taking. Consider this. You won't just survive sadness because you'll make do and get by like a, some coping mechanism. But you will outlast sadness. You will be the one still standing in the ring when sadness lies dead on the mat. You will still be the one standing in the ring with Jesus when death lies dead on the mat. So your expiration date is eternally into the future. There is no expiration date. And all these other things have an expiration date. And Jesus is undoing all of them. Tim Keller has said, and we've quoted it in here a lot, everything sad is going to come untrue, but it will somehow be sweeter for having once been broken and lost. He's basically saying, 
who cheers for the Super Bowl team that had the easy season that beat everybody that just crushed every opponent? All of us have this inner instinct of like, I want to pull for the team that barely got by, that went through adversity, that overcome all the obstacles, that pulled together, made it happen. Somehow, we will all be more joyful because of the scars that we have and the valleys that we went through and the loss that we experienced and the sadness that we tasted. Here's where I want to end. I want to get practical with what do you do with a message like this? Do you just kind of take it in as information and say, okay, now I see the world a little bit differently. Well, there's something more that we can do. Down in verse 14, the teacher adds these words. The first part of it, he says, enjoy prosperity while you can. That's a to-do item. That's an application thing for you this week, even tonight. Enjoy gifts in this life while you can. In other words, he's saying, don't allow death to bully you around as if it gets the last say. Don't think just because you live under the sun now, you'll always live under the sun. Plant that flag in the ground and enjoy life. Enjoy the gifts. See God in every little thing. Stubbornly insist on the little pleasures of life and marvel that they're still present in an evil age. Second, the second part of verse 14. So he says, enjoy prosperity while you can, but when hard times strike, realize that they both, both the prosperity or the good times and the bad times, come from God. Or like Job says in Job chapter 2 when he's being afflicted, shall I receive good from the Lord and not affliction? He's saying the blessings and gifts in your life and the trials in your life came from the same loving hand. Your best days passed through the same filter that your hardest days had to pass through. And the Father's love took out anything and everything that would harm you. This is why he's able to say in Romans 8:28, all things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. That's not the Bible saying, hey, humanity, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. He's saying, to my sons and daughters only, to my people who have come to me for refuge out of death, out of hell, out of all the things we're talking about, to my people, nothing will get through the filter and land on your doorstep that didn't come out of my gracious hand to you. So I want to ask you, do you have a scrappy, fighting, stubborn heart that says to the world, that says to trials, that says to death, that says to grief, God is for me, and I know it. He's for me. And the gifts in my life are evidence of it, and the trials in my life are evidence of it. Because he is present with me, I can survive this sadness, and I can even thrive and grow in this sadness. One of the oldest uh, sayings in the church, this is one of those things that they dug up on scrolls from the early hundreds of years of the ancient church, was Deus pro nobis. God is for us. Say it to each other all the time. You couldn't have been in one of their churches without hearing this. You're like, why is everyone saying this? It's like, it's our mantra, it's our motto. God is for us, God is for us. And these were people who were getting lit up left and right, killed, persecuted, property taken, no social status, and they rejoiced, God is with us. So my question to you, friends, 
is do you know this God who is for you and do you know that he's for you? It makes every difference. And if you don't, look, if, you, if you're listening to this and you're like, I think I might be the fool whose head is like bolted into the sand, I can't think about death. It would terrify me. I can't think about the loss of things that I love. I walk through life trying to avoid the minds that might hurt me or bring sadness to me. Um, Jesus uh, shares this uh, parable, this little metaphor, and he says, um, don't build your house on the sand because when the rain comes, and it will, when the wind comes, and it will, it'll, it'll blow out the foundations underneath that are holding up your life and the, the destruction will be great. Do you know why he tells that story? Not to mock you. Not to say your house sucks. You should have chosen better. But to say, get out of your house and come to me, the rock. Build your house on me. Build your house on the rock. Let's pray. Jesus, you are the rock, not because you give us emotional comfort. You are the rock because you defeated death. You are the older brother who helps us look at scary things because you're taller than them and bigger than them and better than them and you outlive them. And in you we have life and in you we have hope. So my prayer is that I, because I struggle to do this in my friends, because you're with us, would be freed even this week to look at things that we don't like to look at, that we might have a heart of wisdom. Pass this in your name, amen.